Welcome to Some Context Please, a podcast from the team at Foundry Creative School. This podcast is designed to connect our students with what they're learning and to what's actually happening in the real world. Whether you're an active Foundry student listening to this as part of your course or an external listener, my hope is that you'll get an insider look into the specific areas of the creative industries from an industry perspective. I'm your host, Matt Leach, and if you've listened to episode one, you know that this season I'm joined by two industry leaders, Mel Bayash and Tim Rigg. This is the second out of eight episodes that focuses on branding and graphic design. This episode, we spoke about a number of things our students are currently learning, the elements and principles of art and graphic design, and how we categorize identities and logos. I started off talking about the elements and principles, which, as you'll hear, was probably a pretty tough place to begin. The elements and principles are components that are the basic building blocks for any visual design. The elements are as basic as you can get. Dot, line, shape, color, value, texture, space, time, and motion. The principles describe how you use those elements. Unity, harmony, balance, scale, proportion, contrast, emphasis, and rhythm. Mel and Tim inherently use these components without really acknowledging that they do. Mel couldn't remember ever being taught them, but it's obvious when you look at her work that she understands them well. And Tim? Well, Tim had to really think back to his days at college to remember, and even then he wasn't sure he'd ever been shown. No, and when we were just doing the kind of like lead into this, I was struggling to actually think of, is it something I ever knew? <laughs> is it something that I dis- like knew and discarded? Or yeah. is it something like so intrinsic that you just do wi- without uh, thinking? And I guess you were talking about dot and line and these two very basic elements. And, you know, like I, I kind of think of dot as a very abstract thing not not necessarily something appearing as a physical dot on the page but it might be where all of your elements are leading to yeah um so you know my my hero has always been joseph Mueller brockman and he was the you know like he was the the artist of arranging a composition that all led the eye to one point and he did like he could do that through dot or through line down to things as simple as like i've got my own little rules when we were talking about line before that every time i've got a human being in my composition. Um, I'll never have text above their eyeline. Oh, right. Yeah. So, you know, because if you've got two competing, let's say you've got a page and you've got two competing elements on a page. So you've got a, a picture of a human being, like an actual photographic representation, and you've got a headline. Then now you're talking hierarchy of information, which is more important. Yeah. And being a human being yourself, you're going to look to the human first and then hopefully be taken to the text. And I think that by having the text appear above the eyeline, so I'll, I'll draw an imaginary line out from the human's eyeline um, in my head. And, and even if I drop a grid line there, or a guideline there or whatever, I won't have any competing or information above that because it's, I know it's going to mess things up. And so that, I mean, that's obviously a much more advanced composition note. Mm. But if you're thinking about, um, like think about where that, because I was just trying to think back, when did these kind of things start happening with me? And there used to be the whole, when I was studying, there was the whole, you know, the Z theory. The theory that Tim's referring to is often called the Gutenberg principle as well. Um, top left to top right. So you're always finishing off with the logo down bottom right and kind of hopefully leading that top right diagonal down to bottom left. And that's where you put your imagery and you copy down the middle. And yeah, and I mean, that's going to lead to some fairly similar and fairly kind of non-imaginative 
compositions, but I think that's a walk before you can run type of thing, right? It's like understanding why do some compositions work? Is it because do, do classic compositions work because they're good? <laughs> you know, like yeah. is a lot of things, you know, like people say cliches are cliches for a reason. Understanding the, the fundamentals of why a line on a page, whether it's there actually visually or if it's like an abstract line, understanding what that's doing to the the millionth of a second that you've got for somebody's eye to look at your page or composition or whatever. What are you doing to what, – what journey are you taking them on with that line? So I think what you're saying is that it's, it is kind of inherent in those and it, it has a chance after you get through the basics it can become a lot more kind of detailed and, and much more kind of advanced I guess in, in the kind of way you think about things. Yeah, and I think it's a, it's a great thing for your students that you're, t- you're teaching it because I think that now that we're talking about it, I think it's something that me viewing it as intrinsic means I probably knew it to some extent all along, but mm. I don't I don't remember ever being taught that stuff. So it's great that it's yeah. actually it's reinforced nowadays in a design education as something that, you know, you can enhance. Um, you can go, why does this composition work? As opposed to no just knowing it in your heart. Yeah. Like if I were to you kind of make me want to go back and look through some old work now and think about Well I, I what, for for me it was I can't remember being taught uh, it, it at all in art college and I remember when I first started teaching I was given a class and they were like you're teaching dot and line for the next three hours and I was like <laughs> and anything else and they're yeah. like no no just just get them get that across first and it was amazing because then I really went into it and then mm. you know I had shape for a whole three hours and then when you get onto the principle really interesting stuff starts to happen there because when you have two elements on a page the relationship between those two elements and how you can start to, I guess, indicate or allow the viewer to kind of be a part of what you're creating because mm. they'll, they'll start to have assumptions about what those shapes are doing or, or how they relate to each other. I think if you can invite the viewer to have an experience with the... I mean, there, there's no greater moment from an audience's point of view or, you know, reader, audience. There's no greater moment than when they're looking at the thing that you've made and they feel like they're in on it. Yeah. <laughs> like if they get it, um, so if there are these kind of like principles that are applied to composition and the, the, the viewer, the customer, whatever, they actually go, oh, this talks to me on a level. And then hopefully they don't really understand why either. Uh, intrinsically pleasing to them, you know, yeah. like a symmetrical face is intrinsically pleasing. You know, things designed in the golden ratio are intrinsically pleasing, but the viewer shouldn't know why. Yeah. Uh, they should just be going, oh, wow, that's so much nicer that's, than the thing sitting next to it. It's really interesting, though, because do you think it loses any of its appeal when you do know some of those those tricks? Oh, as a designer, yeah. I mean, but as a, as a designer, you should be immune to design. Mm. You should be like, I mean, you know, I worked in advertising. If I ever felt, if I ever got suckered in by a piece of advertising or a campaign, <laughs> I'd just beat myself up for days like yeah. if, I, if i ended up buying something that was advertised to me i felt like writing a congratulations letter to the <laughs> campaign director you know like because as a designer you should be yes you've seen behind the curtain as you said but that once again it comes back to the critical eye assembling someone else's page or layout or piece that they've made and going oh i see what they've done there first of all it comes back to wow how could i how could I incorporate that, improve on it? Um, what can I learn from it? 
but yeah you don't you don't want to um as a designer you don't want to get sucked in by it you don't want to we don't want to get higher on our own supply you know what i mean like yeah i love the elements and principles of art and design because it effectively teaches your eyes how to see like a designer as i mentioned tim and mel already see this way so going back to basics for them was almost impossible at this point, I decided to change tack and focus on the other part of this session, which was all about how we categorize logos. I began by asking Mel why it was important that we categorize logos in the first place. I think it gives you a base understanding of what things are, helps you to articulate those things to a client and help them understand. Like a lot of the time when you're working with a client, um, they'll say logo but they, they might mean a word mark or yep. they might mean a pictogram and a word mark or they might mean a monogram. And if you don't start using that language with them and help them understand what you're trying to do, things could get very difficult. Like I yep. know um, years ago I did a freelance project um, and they wanted a logo and I gave them a word mark. And they were like, that's really nice, but where's my logo? (laughs) And what they meant was, you know, they wanted a pictogram. So I think those are just really good. It's just good to have that as a base level to know. I think when you're designing from there, as long as you know what you're trying to achieve and what the logo needs to do wherever you land is fine, but it's good to know the difference. At Foundry, we teach a fairly basic logo categorization system, which is word marks, monograms or letter marks, and then pictograms or picture marks. I asked Mel whether there were any other outside that that we should be including. Um, you know, I'm trying to like rack my brain to think of some of the other ones. I feel like it probably can, I don't know, people may disagree with me, but I, I think at the end of the day, the terminology becomes less important as long as you're starting from a, a, a base where whoever you're working with has the same understanding as you. Yep. So as long as you have that and you're there together, I think wherever you end up going, whether it's one of these, you know, names that I can't think of what else they are, I, I don't think you really need to know. I mean, I would almost argue that we, you know, we live in a digital world. So regardless of whether it's a pictogram a word mark or whatever it should move mm. and so i think for us we we would never put it in another category because we think it's it's like at a base level you should be thinking like that and if you're not and you want it to be static that's fine but i think you've got to think about how much more engaging motion is um, i think anyone who's looking at you know say instagram they're going to stop and look at something that moves before they look and stop and look at something that's still. This is a really good point that Mel brings up. Motion is so important in branding these days. If it doesn't move, people are liable to think there's something wrong with their phone. It's really an expectation. I asked Tim if he ever starts working on a brief and just knows that he's going to use a word mark or a pictogram based on the client. In other words, are they more than just categories? Can they be tools as well? No. Like we were saying earlier, I mean, you, your brain is on fire from the second you get the brief and you're thinking about things and the, there's a tendency for designers to kind of to answer that question very quickly. And I think that that's doing yourself and your client a disservice because I think all avenues should be open at the very start yeah. of a project. I think there are some things, I mean, there are exceptions, obviously. Like if someone says, I'm making an app, 
and you're responsible for the branding of the app. And so you know that you're going to be working within the confines of Apple's app ecosystem. Um, yeah. yeah. And so you know, for example, the real estate. So you know you're either going to be using the first letter of the company name or, you know, a, a symbol. So there are some things that you can start to go, oh, they're going to need to be part of this. But that's only when you're working within the parameters of something that the client has said, this is definitely an app. Like if somebody came to you and said, hey, we're rebranding my fish and chip shop, then, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, no, you shouldn't have any preconceived before, like when you walk out of that room until you've sat down and started doing your research and your planning and whatever, everything should be on the table. Yeah, it's interesting about the whole app thing. Wordmark's not going to work in that situation at all, are they? No, no. I mean, because if you're looking at a square piece of real estate, you can't put a horizontal piece of real estate inside yeah. it because otherwise it's going to be tiny. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, things like that are obviously proving to be limitations nowadays. And also, I mean, not necessarily just if somebody comes to you with an app, but you might need to be thinking if somebody comes to you as a startup or with a website or with a you know software as a service offering or whatever, you might need to be thinking two or three years down the track. You might need to be thinking at the moment it's a website or at the moment it's a fish and ship shop. But what happens when that fish and ship shop does have an app yeah. in three or four years' time? This thing which, I mean, in branding, obviously, you want to say, say the most possible in, with the greatest economy visually and so thinking about that kind of stuff from the start is something that you'd want to do i mean nobody wants to have a 50 word logo i, I saw um i was taking a walk in centennial park the other day and like this i mean like, bless him like this lawn care specialist on the side of his ute had a photograph of himself in his logo and then you know it's very cursive like and it was it was a logo technically yeah. <laughs> i guess but it's like where else is that going to work other than two feet high on the side of a ute. Yeah. Like, <laughs> shrink that down to five mils high. It's There's no favicon. There's no app icon. It's not going to go onto a letterhead. Yeah. Uh, it's not going to work in a business card even. No. Yeah. Um, I'm sure his mum loves it. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, he's such a handsome boy, <laughs> you know, whatever. But so and that sounds, it sounds a little bit negative to be thinking about limitations out of the box, but that comes back to problem solving, I think, is that if you want no limitations, be an artist. But design has got limitations. There are rules to follow and there are, you know, there's media that you have to fit inside of. But yeah, in terms of deciding what kind of ident you're going to have, definitely not at the briefing stage. I asked a similar question to Mel. Are there certain clients or certain industries that lend themselves to one of the categories more? For instance, restaurants might like a word mark more or sports brands might prefer a pictogram. Ooh. I, I guess because when the way that we work, whenever starting by thinking about the graphic elements. Mm -hmm. So I think what that means is inherently, I think we start with, I'd probably even say text or typography. So with what we're trying to say, and then we start, you know, filling filling that space probably isn't the right term, but then kind of applying other graphic elements from there. I think I think it's important to understand how those separate pieces can add to a piece of communication, um, and I think it's important to understand that none of those things should be decorative. There should be a reason for why they're there. But yeah, I would say that often we we start by thinking about what we're trying to say, and uh, Jason, who's my ECD, Jason Little, um, he has a thing about designers being able to write. 
um, which I think I didn't really realize was that important when I started out and I used a lot of lorem ipsum and I realized further down the track that once you know what you're actually trying to say with something, sometimes the other bits do just come along and follow that. I was interested to find out more about this process of putting the writing first. I asked Mel if this was just a way to get the ideas out quickly or is it more of writing a mission statement for the outcome they wanted for the client or the project? So like if you saw my thought process, usually it's an illustrator file with lots of boards and usually like a phrase to get me going and then I'll unpack that. So if I was to say, um, I remember when we worked on Sydney Film Festival, a lot of the background thinking was you know quite simple it's like it's sydney it's film and we came to this little phrase of uh bringing the city alive with film and then so that was a starting point on one board and then on the next board we were like okay what does that mean so where does film show up in the city how Mm -hmm. can we get people involved let's unpack what actually film is and the tropes and what people who love it and like live and breathe it actually look at and would notice and we'd unpack all those things so from there we get kind of all our graphic elements uh we start getting our language so if you look at the language of you know reviews and um even on movie posters I guess there's still reviews or classifications or whatever it might be and you know you'd you'd end up jotting down a ton of those things and then at the end of that you kind of have your toolkit. Mm -hmm. So you've got a look and feel from, you know, the world of film. You've got a whole heap of elements that you can design to and you've got some language as a starting point. And then you go, okay, so where is this going to live? What do I need it to apply to? And then you already have this toolkit kind of ready to go and Mm -hmm. you can play with that. Does it limit you to English-speaking clients? I would say for things like that, it obviously does. We did have a little bit of work to do because it is an international film fest, that one, Mm -hmm. uh, where there was translations and we worked a lot with the client to make sure that that didn't inhibit anything. But I think like working with – we've worked with an international client recently and what I would say actually just like going back to more of the graphic thing, we lent more heavily into – you know, visuals of people or even, um, you know, what's a great one is um, illustration and metaphor because that can cross cultures yeah. um, and cross languages. So for sure, I think at that stage when you understand that you need to talk to an international audience, you have to not start with English. It seemed pretty clear now that the categories word, mark, monogram and pictogram were not necessarily tools to be used as part of the ideation phase. It needs to be more organic, letting the research show you the best outcome. I asked him whether there was a different process in building each of them. For instance, if through the research it become clear that it needed to be a word mark, what would the process be for designing that identity? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know I've got a like a heavy interest and background in typography. So let's say I've decided that I'm going to have a, a word mark. That, I mean, look, if you're a type nerd, you're a type nerd and you know it. Yeah. <laughs> And you know, before anyone even teaches you, you know that like a capital A and a capital V are making love to each other. Yeah. Right? Like, like there are things that a type nerd knows and there, there are kind of relationships between letters and it doesn't matter if you're talking sans um, or serif or slab serif. It doesn't matter if you're talking, you know, the Russian alphabet. There are letter 
shapes and forms, there are universal truths that speak across any font. And it's understanding those. And I think having them as knowledge in the back of your mind before you even sit down at the sketchbook, if you're starting with a word mark, is so and that's going to come down to training it's like like a marathon runner doesn't just go out and train for a marathon by running a marathon like you run several half marathon kind of thing that's all done on your own time as a student like is getting to know the ins and outs of letter shapes we probably had the same typography teacher peter (laughs) yeah did he did he force you to draw out the letter forms uh yeah yeah i think with peter i think we were tracing letter forms and but i mean even down to you know obtuse things like he had us visiting graveyards and doing rubbings on gravestones and stuff to get an idea of letter shapes yeah i mean i haven't thought about peter in a long time but like because i had two teachers i had him and mark stott obviously two very different approaches but yeah i guess i peter had a very um he wanted a hands-on appreciation and understanding of where letters came from and i think he probably i think he probably did that quite well I did. I definitely found myself, even recently, just if I see a letter form that I really like, I will trace it just to kind of learn, yeah, right. learn it. Because I get, yeah, a type nerd like <laughs> You're you. You're type nerd, yeah. yeah. Get, get very excited about particularly ligatures and how letters kind of come, Ooh, come together. Building your own ligatures. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, and that's funny, actually, that, like, I said that I'm a bit off tools nowadays, but, like, I still obviously design for my own sake and there's just something about building your own ligatures um and then monograms as well i found was a very similar sort of area because you are literally looking at forms and how they may come together and um, influence each other and yeah and I, i think that that once again comes down to an understanding i mean monograms are i think a special class of identity because one you're talking about a design language that existed long before there was even a concept of a brand. So you're talking about something that's centuries and centuries old that came from, you know, plate printing or even hand etching. And it was done for, like, literally monograms of people. So it was, a, I guess it was the earliest kind of personal branding. So it's got the most heritage out of, I think, them. So, I mean, if you're designing a brand that needs that heritage or if you're designing for a person that has that kind of ego that wants their own initials. Yeah. <laughs> um, which, but that happens. Like, somebody is dead set on, hey, I want, I'm Tim Rigg, I want a TR logo. <laughs> you know, like, you're going to deal with those egos and temperaments. Yeah. But then, yeah, it's almost like that's, it's almost a very pure form of design like people would think it's easy oh you just take the t you take the r you put them together Mm. but it's understanding you said that when you come across a new letter shape you'll trace it out there are a thousand different r's and all subtly different and none of them look exactly like the one that you drew by hand in your book (laughs) when you sit down in illustrator and actually start seeing what they are actually composed of and so yeah i mean monogram designing the most exciting bit is when you realize, oh, okay, I'm going to be actually creating letters from scratch here. I mean, that's one, of, as a type designer, um, if anyone out there is wanting to design fonts, that's one of the most exciting bits in branding when you go, oh, my goodness, I just made a font. <laughs> yeah. Um, even if it's only two letters, like I can build a grid and go off the back of that. I think a monogram is probably one of the trickiest, despite how simple it looks. If I think back to the monograms I've designed, that they would have taken up the most pages in a book yeah. Before I've sat lots down. Lots and lots of thumbnails, yeah. Yeah. So what about pictograms then? How, what's, how does the process change for that? 
that's going to come back down to economy of line. Uh, and so that's going to be, so let's say you've gone through all of your research, you've gone through all of your um, current and desired markets, and you've gone, okay, cool, what I need here is a, basically a symbol, a pictogram that's going to have cut through and get through to people very, very quickly. Then, I mean, we were talking a minute ago about, you know, the guy who put a photograph of his face on the side of I mean, that could be stage one yeah. in a 20-stage process of designing a pictogram. Yeah. Like you could end up with a one-colour print, ostensibly a stencil, of his face that's recognisable from any distance, five yeah. mils high or whatever. Yeah, KFC, the colonel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's that distillation from photo down to thing. So it doesn't always have to start with a photo. But I, look, I remember when I was studying and, you you know, our mutual friend Paul Garbett and you were talking about Peter and some of the kind of baptisms of fire he put us through. Paul Garbett, I remember designing my first pictogram for him and it had to be animal-based. And the first... I mean, one thing I don't think you're definitely not going to get in the real world is four weeks <laughs> um, to yeah. design a brand um, or an ident. But the first three weeks of a four-week brief, you know, we weren't allowed to touch the computer. When I decided I wanted to have a zoo, it, you had to do a logo for a zoo and it had to be a pictogram and it had to be an animal. The first three weeks, he had us drawing, like my animal, for example, was a polar bear. So I needed to be able to draw a polar bear basically from every angle, like yeah. from underneath and like not just – so you started off with 100 photographs and then you'd build like almost a 3D model. <laughs> so you could then design a polar bear. I, by the end of it, I knew how to design a polar bear on ice skates holding an apple. Yeah, you know? yeah. And then once you've got that understanding of the animal or whatever it is you're trying to portray, that's when you plug in your customer insight. Okay, I need – for example, the colonel needs to look like your – down south, friendly, back porch, mint tulip, sipping yep. um, governor kind of guy. And you go, oh, cool, well, I'm going to do that through a bow tie. I'm going to do that through a beard. I'm going to do that through a moustache. And that's when you start adding your bits onto your colonel or your polar bear or whatever. So a different process, um, again, but, I mean, no less time-consuming, just different process. Based on everything I've heard, I tried to summarise in this way. The category of the logo will organically become apparent through the process of research and discovery. Mel agreed to a point, but also pointed out that it's not always this straightforward. I, you know, I would love to say that it evolves more naturally, but what I would often say is all the time the client has a pretty strong opinion. There are a lot of jobs that we've done where it's just been an evolution um, so you're just, you know, modernizing a word mark and their icon stays the same. And to be completely honest, logo tends to come at the end. So I think whereas when I started out working in design, logo came first. Mm -hmm. Now it's almost like, and maybe a little bit too late, we tend to do this, but now we do the rest of the brand and then we're like, cool, we need to do the logo. Sometimes we even almost forget to do the logo, <laughs> which is not great. <laughs> Mellon mentioned that some of their clients had very strong opinions about what they needed. I asked her what you should do if their opinion is clashing with your own. Yeah, I think that's a tough one because I think for a lot of people, it doesn't matter how much you talk to them about brand and branding and all of you know the opportunities in the world, they're still going to want to boil down things to a single word mark or icon or whatever. But I think... What we try and do if we disagree 
is you've just got to try and help them understand where you're coming from and why. And often that means, you know, doing like going into the effort of doing the research or if you haven't done that up front, you know, you have to dig in and say, okay, maybe for instance in your category, if you stay doing this and looking like this, you're not going to stand out. So that's like one reason. Other times we might just think we're evolving the brand. You're making this huge leap forward because you guys want to. But if you stay with this legacy logo, it's going to be almost like a a misstep or a misalignment is probably the better word where people will still look at you like this thing that you were because that is what what that thing actually depicts and what you're trying to be is much different. But I I would say that for the most part, if they don't want to move from the logo that they have, there are small things that you can always do to contemporize it. Um, A lot of the times when we do stuff like that, we're making it better for digital. There are a lot of people whose logos were designed when everything was print and now they have to work, you know, in a social icon or a favicon. And those are small ways that, you know, most clients want that and once they're you know once that's pointed out to them they're like oh oh my god of course like we absolutely need to do that as a minimum this is the second time favicon have been brought up so i thought it best to kind of i guess clarify what she meant by it oh so a favicon is so if you open up chrome you know the tiny little icon in the tab yeah that's the favicon so sometimes you're designing you know i think it's like a 16 by 16 pixel icon level thing so sometimes if you've got a word mark that's going to be one letter yeah so it changes everything doesn't it? yeah when you start thinking about apps and motion favicons you can't limit yourself to just being one of the three you need to be all of them don't you yeah in a way even word marks can end up being pictograms we've done you know word marks that are that stylized that I wouldn't call them a word mark anymore. I would call them a pictogram. And often what you can do from there is one thing that we talk about is it becomes kind of like just the visual cue for the brand. So it's less about what it says and more about what you recognize it as. Um, But I think certainly when we're designing logos, we kind of go, okay, this is your, you know, your full width version when you have the most room. And then let's go to, you know, a desktop uh, computer then let's go down to a mobile then let's go down to a favicon and you do have to think about that i think so this categorization of identities is less about being a tool and more about a common language that you can use with other designers and with your clients yeah it's it's a common language now and i i think it is I think digital is the language that everyone is speaking now. And if you don't understand that language, you're going to be in for a tough trot. Wise words to finish on. So that's all for this episode. If you like what you heard, reach out to Tim or Mel on their socials and show your appreciation. Next episode, we'll have them both back as we discuss gestalt theory, the art of simplicity, and why finding the problem needs to happen before solving the problem. Until then, thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time. Some Context Please is produced by Foundry and executive produced by me, Matt Leach. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can find me on Twitter at Leachworth or find Foundry on Instagram at MyFoundryLife. 
Foundry is an Australian creative school designed to bridge the gap between education and industry. We work with the top creative leaders from all creative disciplines to design courses that help you find your passion and turn it into a career. To find out more about Foundry's current courses and upcoming intakes, visit foundry.com.au.